Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast, right here on Arsblog.com. Sorry. I forgot to shut the door. Anyway, how are you? Hope you're well. Things are strange, eh? Things are different. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Things are not the way we're used to them being, but it is a Friday and there is an Arscast. So that's about as much as I can do for you. Can't do anything about all the rest of it. I wish I could. Oh, God, I wish I could. But I don't have that magic, unfortunately. It's all very weird, isn't it? It's um, just the idea of, of going somewhere now is, is extremely appealing. And I don't mean necessarily a holiday. I don't mean a trip to a far-flung destination. I don't mean going somewhere I've never been before. I just like to go to my to my local and just have a pint down to Onshaw on Camden Street and have a pint of Scraggy Bay and eat a packet of peanuts and sit there and watch the regulars come in and out and notice all the people that you notice around town. You know, if you live in a city or if you live in a specific area of a city, you will see people uh, on a regular basis. They may not know you. They may not recognize you, but you recognize them because you see them every day of the week. You walk down the road and there they are. There's the man who who has the bandage on his head. Every time you see him, he's got a bandage on his head. He's carrying a newspaper and he's got a bandage on his head, a fresh one. What? Why? Why has he got the ba- I don't know why he's got it, but he's got it. He's there and I see him or saw him Almost every day of the week, the cast of characters that are in your life that you don't even realize are kind of important to it because they give you this sense of of sameness. I don't know if sameness is the right word, but it's it's sort of regularity. This is this is where I am. These are the people who are around me, and this is this is the way it is. And now it's not the way it is. And I don't know what any of those people are doing. And I, you know, I find it strange. I've got two big dogs and uh, they need to get out and that's fine. And, uh, you know, I've been getting out with the dogs and, and that's, that's some measure of normality because uh, dogs don't know that there's a pandemic. Dogs don't care that there's a pandemic. There's a park to go to. There's a stick to chase. There's a rock to pick up. There's a, a river to wade through. The dogs are as happy as they've ever been. And that's great. And you can find some kind of happiness in that. But, you know, uh, my dad is is uh, a little way away from me, not too far up the road. It's about a 10-minute drive, 5-10 minute drive. But you're not supposed to go more than two kilometers from your house because of the, the rules that we have. And a couple of times this week, I've been uh, stopped by the police, by the guardie on the way back down. And they're asking, you know, where are you going? Where are you coming from? And you explain it to them and everything is fine. And they're like, well, that, yeah, that's cool. And they they're very nice about it. But it's still really odd, like the increased police presence, I understand it, but it's, I don't know. I mean, what if it takes a a left turn and all of a sudden those interactions are not as pleasant and not as polite? It's not too much of a stretch, considering that six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, none of us thought we would be where we are now. So where we're going to be in six or eight weeks' time... I just can't tell you. I was up in my dad's house um, the other day with him, and he had the news on. He had CNN on or one of those one of those channels, and they have a ticker. They have, like, um, at the top, it sort of tells you how many people are infected uh, in the world, 
and it was coming up on three quarters of a million, something like that. And then it gives you the total of the people who've died. And you're looking at it thinking, okay, we, we need information. Information is important. But where's the balance between telling people what they need to know and something that's, you know, a number, uh, an abstract number there for a kind of weird entertainment way? I don't know how to describe it. Like, it's just going to go up and up and up and up and up. Like, do the numbers change color? Do they get, do they flash red as they get higher? I don't know. I don't know. I just find it quite surreal looking at at stuff like that. But what can you do other than talk about it at the start of a podcast to make it a profoundly depressing intro? My apologies. I do apologize for that. This week, we have been doing lots of stuff to try and keep you entertained. Of course, we had the Arscast Extra on Monday, and we had a great podcast with Ian Wright talking about David Rocastle on Tuesday. And for our Patreon members, there was a My Arse, an episode of My Arse, in which I talked to an Arsenal fan about their life and times as an Arsenal fan, which kind of was the case, but not necessarily uh, with Philippe O'Clair, who you've listened to on this podcast many times before, but he has another life, another side to him, and we explore that on the uh, Patreon. Also, we did a live stream, myself and James and Elliot from the Arsenal Vision podcast, and we will try and do as much as we can to keep you uh, entertained, distracted, and um, vaguely amused. I think if I can keep you vaguely amused over the coming weeks and months, uh, I'll, I'll be content with that. So let's get on with today's show. My first guest is a football writer. He's been on the show lots of times before. Delighted to welcome back Daniel Story. Hi, Daniel. Hi there. You all right? I am all right. How are you doing? Um, you yes. know, as a freelance football journalist, these are trying times. Uh, they are. I'm very lucky to have a, a book project ongoing and I could hug and kiss both the subject and the publisher at the moment. Um and after that, it will go very quiet, I think, May, June, July, potentially. But, mm. you know, got my health and that's the main thing. That's a very good way of looking at it. Well, what are you missing most about football? And, you know, look, I know there are big, wide issues that should concern us all and everything else. Uh, and I think um, what's going on is putting football in perspective for a lot of people. Nevertheless, football is still a great thing. You can think football is still a brilliant thing and realize it's not the most important thing in the world. So, you know, what are you missing most, if not necessarily from a work point of view, but just as a football fan? The live matches, obviously, both as a, as a journalist and as a fan. Um, I mean, clearly we have a summer break and we have international breaks every year so maybe it feels a little bit like that at the moment but it's it's that removal of footballers normality i think that is hampering a lot of people it's at a time when everything else is non-normal and we're having to change our behaviors and change how we live i think not having football there is that constant and it has become a constant mm. over the last decade yeah, that's that's the real punishing thing for me. Feels like football would be a great thing to tide us over during this. If we had football, <laughs> it'd, exactly, it'd make yeah. things easier. But of course, you know that's not the case, and it might not be the case for some time. Um, you know, we, we'll we'll come to that um, in a moment. Um, but just reflecting on what's happening in the game and what's happening in life and society and all of those things, um, what we think will happen with football and what is going to happen with football are very difficult to predict because the scale of this uh, virus and the impact that it's having on everybody is is um, unprecedented and it changes so quickly from one week to the next. Um, we've seen stories this week, for example, about player wages and staff at certain clubs being let go or being asked to take part in, in government schemes and, and those kind of things. Um how do we view football clubs and how they treat their staff at this moment in time? Because some of them are obviously doing the right thing and, and committing to paying staff and casual staff. Others are seeking to take advantage of government schemes, et cetera, et cetera. Should we be surprised that in some cases there's a lack of what you might consider morality from football club owners? I, I don't think we should be surprised if I'm brutally honest. Um, I feel that this is a period of our lives after which we will come out with pretty changed views of of our priorities and of what really matters. And I think football would be too arrogant if it believed it could exist outside of that. 
Um, it has long existed in its own bubble in terms of you know cultural finances and you know rapid raise uh, wage rises and transfer fees. But I think football is going to have to realise that it, it isn't able to escape that anymore. And those people, those owners who choose self-interest and greed over over morality history will judge them accordingly I, I honestly believe that and I honestly hope that I hope that we don't get to a stage where when football does immediately come back and let's say it opens with a transfer window that clubs who are then pursuing 20 million pound 30 million pound players who haven't looked after their casual staff I hope the game will judge them accordingly because mm. it's disgraceful um, that government retention scheme was was intended to uh, avoid mass redundancies and was intended to help out those companies, those businesses who wouldn't be able to survive otherwise. Football can survive. The big Premier League clubs can survive without mass redundancies and, and this scheme. And, and choosing to use it, to me, feels like a a pretty dismal move, if not surprising. The... Um, the scale, uh, you know, of, of wealth um, when it comes to ownership of Premier League football clubs is... I don't suppose it's anything that that will surprise people, but um, and I know Wikipedia isn't necessarily the um, the be all and end all when it comes to um, you know accurate information, but just as a, a sort of a guideline thing here, they have a list of Premier League clubs and a list of owners and their combined net worth. Now I know football clubs can exist as part of you know uh, you know a sidearm to the main business, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But only five of the 20 Premier League clubs have a net worth below $1 billion. And those are Bournemouth, Burnley, uh, what's the other one we have here? Norwich City, Sheffield United, and the other one is Watford. Every other club is well above a billion. Uh, and you're looking at some, for example, Arsenal. It's relevant. Stan Kroenke's net worth is is enormous, um, estimated around $9 billion. Uh, we know about Chelsea. We know about Manchester City, uh, Liverpool, Manchester United. All these clubs have these, these vast, vast resources. I want to ask you about players now in a minute because there is a certain um, a growing... Uh, idea that that the top players should take wage cuts, which could help the rest of the staff at the club, uh, and we've seen that happen in 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 other clubs in other countries. But shouldn't the shouldn't the focus first uh, and foremost be on the owners, because they are the ones with the this vast wealth, even if it isn't all cash in hand and liquid. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're two separate entities, but the, the buck should not be passed from the owner to the players. I, I honestly agree. I agree mm. with you that, or I agree with the principle that players should take a wage cut. Um, and it hasn't happened yet. I hope that's just because it takes a, a fair amount of organisation and administration and thrashing out the details of that will take time. I think it probably should have already happened. I think there should have been a statement of intent that would have earned them some goodwill. Um, but I do believe that will happen at some point. Um, but the owners should not be allowed to pass the buck. Uh, these owners are have got into positions of vast wealth, probably through the same business practices, this, the same pursuit of wealth that is formulating some of their opinions now, which is that well, I'm going to you know I'm going to look after my own interests first, and there's no reason why I should take a hit just because there's a coronavirus. Um, but there's a morality to this it's not sh it's not purely business football clubs like to play fast and loose with that idea of being businesses you know they like to pursue a, a capitalist dream but then they also enjoy an incredible amount of loyalty from its customers you know if if tottenham treat its staff dismally if tottenham was a, a washing powder you might buy a different washing powder but fans are not going to go and support arsenal or chelsea because their club has mistreated its staff so that loyalty creates it's a responsibility to, to uphold a degree of morality in my mind and we haven't seen that so far unfortunately mm. and, and of course we know as well that it's extremely difficult to break the bonds between a club and a, a, a fans you know as a fan you're you're invested in this club for probably a lifetime since you were a kid and to, to walk away um, you know football clubs and I include Arsenal in this can behave sometimes in ways which really doesn't sit right with you but because you have this 
addiction, affliction, whatever you want to call it, it becomes very difficult to walk away. And, you know, I think over recent years, we have seen people who have said, no, I've had enough. I don't like what this is. I don't like the way it's going. I don't like the way I'm treated as a uh, a customer, a client, a, a source of money rather than a fan or a supporter. And that ties into the, to the business side of things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there is a, a I guess, a sort of inherent... Um, desire or or belief on the part of a football club that they can behave in certain ways because they know that they're not going to get a great deal of kickback for it yeah exactly but i do think i do believe honestly that that this is a this is a sea change moment for for our society and our culture in in general and i think people will be more prepared to or less prepared to turn a blind eye to that sort of behavior you know you mentioned fans if clubs continue to charge ever-increasing ticket prices, well, people are going to be less financially well-off after this. They're going to have to make sacrifices. They're going to have to make choices. And the reality is if they believe that the club is, over this period, has not looked out for them, has not looked out for the casual staff, has Mm. not looked out for those on on the very lowest, uh, with the very lowest ability to cope, then I think it will create a, a, a backlash. I think we're probably already seeing that. Just in terms of the players and, and the idea that players should take a, the top player should take a pay cut, you know, in order to help the rest of the club survive. And there's, you know, there's something honourable about that. Um, again, you come back to the idea that you know maybe it shouldn't be like that, um, but it is a reality and it is potentially something which could help a lot of football clubs. Uh, Nick Harris, who I'm sure you follow and many people do, who's at Sporting Intel. Uh, on Twitter says at Premier League level at most clubs and he has most in kind of inverted commas there the top 25-30 earners taking a pay cut of 25% for three to six months would mean nobody on the non-playing staff would need any cuts at all Uh, he says it's complex nobody should force this on the players but it is doable and invaluable PR Um, you know there's an argument that you know, because you earn a lot of money, your lifestyle is different. You need a lot of money to keep up that lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I think if there is to be uh, a football that we can all get behind in the future, something like this would definitely uh, sit well with fans that if at least the players are willing to make a sacrifice, if not the owners, then, you know, they can be held up as as an example Um and we can, you know, bring the rest of them to the guillotine afterwards. Yeah, I mean, my personal view is that that players shouldn't take a wage cut um, for its own sake because I think that just saves the club money, which is not really what this is about. I think that, that there should, there has to be a scheme whereby the money that the player saved is is fully accounted, fully counted up, and that money as we said, should go to that non-playing staff and also, I think, should go to reducing, subsidising ticket prices and travel for supporters when this is finally over. Because I think if you ha- if you could do the figures and, and let's say players take a cut and, for example, it, it creates a pot of £10 million over three months or six months, that £10 million is then quantifiable and can then be divvied out accordingly whether Mm. it's community schemes whether it's playing non-playing staff whether it's subsidizing ticket prices it has to be a cause of giving something back i'm not interested in players taking a pay cut purely to save the club money because this the reason for them to do that is to create uh, a wealth distribution at a time when the country needs it most are you in any way surprised that at a time when in many countries businesses are being told you cannot open um, you know, small, medium, even some large size businesses are, are not allowed to open because they're not considered essential services. And we understand, I think, all the reasons why those restrictions have been put in place, you know, to stop the spread of the virus and to flatten the curve and to get ourselves, you know, back on track, um, you know, as a society and to ensure that people's health and well-being, you know, is is protected, you know, um old people are not uh, just there to be sacrificed for this virus so we can continue with with capitalism. So, you know, people who really can't afford to do it, people who, who live month to month in terms of their um, their wages, their income, their rents, all childcare, all those kind of things, and business owners who need to be open 
day after day, week after week after week to keep their businesses going and liquid are now, you know, in a situation where they, they just cannot do it. They are not allowed to do it. And yet we're hearing constantly about these ideas about football being brought back, games played behind closed doors, uh, you know, as a way of fulfilling contracts that they have with, with broadcasting institutions. There's an interesting story uh, this morning on the Evening Standard by James Ollie. Uh, a, law, a law firm uh, is claiming that overseas broadcasters are exploring the possibility of suing the Premier League if the current season is not completed. And apparently in France, Canal Plus uh, is uh, is not paying the next uh, batch of money that they have to pay uh, to the France Football Federation or the Football League in France to broadcast their games. So these these um, monetary concerns are driving this idea. Why is football or why should football as a business be any different from anyone else? Yeah, it shouldn't. It, it, it is, it, as I say, it has enjoyed this, this pedestal that it stood on above pretty much every other cultural entity in this country and and globally and nobody this virus the one thing about this virus is that it, it pays no respect it's completely universal nobody can stand above it and say well we're not affected i know that they have this idea of creating camps where squads and players can stay in but <laughs> it just doesn't work for me we have to remember that the premier league was perfectly happy for games to go on until Mikel Arteta contracted the virus and it was only him contracting the virus that stopped them carrying on playing matches it wasn't the it wasn't the idea of well hang on the the country is entering a time of crisis here maybe Mm. we need to take a look at ourselves and look at what really matters it wasn't that at all and as you say the the arranging of games that or the 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 desperate clamor to get games put on is is not to provide that sense of normality to supporters it's not to provide that that link to a, a to a social um, pursuit that they consider dear, it's a pursuit of, of television money. It, nothing more, nothing less. The the perception, I think, is that football clubs are rich, um, which, you know, they deal in huge amounts of money and everything else. But I think when you look at the profits that they turn, they're not necessarily massive when it comes to, you know, um, big, big industry. Mm. Do you think there's a there's a, um, a sort of panic on the ha- on behalf of the football clubs that the way that they operate is so dependent on obviously television money, gate receipts, uh, things like transfers, which may or may not uh, be anywhere near as lucrative as they were beforehand, that it's sort of um, bringing into focus the precarious nature of the way these clubs operate, you know, buying a player and you you uh, pay the transfer fee over X amount of years and what have you. And that makes that makes sense because you can't just pay a hundred million pounds in cash for a player if you're buying that kind of a player. But it does sort of suggest that that maybe they need to think about how they're run and how they're operating as as businesses. Um, yeah. If if a shutdown for just even you know six weeks eight weeks maybe three months can have such a, a profound impact, yeah, one hundred percent. I think this is a huge wake up call for for English football, not just clearly not just at, at Premier League level, but we hear often about this idea of a football family, and it's a very sugary cliche. But we are finding out now that that. Clubs are going to have to help each other if we want our league structure to continue as we have known it for so long. And if we consider the English league structure to be sacrosanct as a as a traditional and a historic entity, mm. then there is going to have to be to some degree of, of wealth distribution because otherwise it will simply not exist as it does. It really won't because nobody could have foresaw or nobody could have seen a, a period of six months without any football, but it doesn't say much for the, the precarious nature of those clubs that they cannot c- exist. And let's face it, we'd already seen before the coronavirus that the football league was creaking, that clubs were on the very brink of mm. the financial apocalypse. And this has only brought that into starker focus. And what about the idea that players, um, you know, if, if again, coming back to the idea that if you're your regular uh Joe Soap can't go to work 
because it's not safe for him to do so because, you know, either for him or for everybody else, this sort of chain of, of infection or whatever. What about the idea that footballers, just because they earn a lot of money or just because we need entertainment, should be asked to do this? It feels, you know, that, that um, you know, that camp idea that was put out there um, earlier in the week or late last week. You know, to me, that felt very much like uh, almost a dystopian entertainment conglomerate thing that, okay, these guys are kind of expendable. It doesn't matter what happens to them as long as we get our football fix. Yeah, and, and I think we saw that with the with the testing of players um, prior to you know, prior to the game mm. ceasing for the season because there was already an outcry from the public that said, hang on a minute, you know, football is football. But it, it, nothing matters now. This is completely universal. We're all on the same standing. If tests are available, then why are they not being given to NHS workers in hospitals? You know, it, I, I don't want to stray dangerously close to the give soldiers footballers wages line, but we mm. are getting closer to that that standpoint now, I think, where we have to assess football's importance in in the context of a global virus and the reality is it doesn't matter and the, the reality is is that our resources now must go to the most vulnerable must go to those who are most able to fight the virus not those who are most able to entertain football supporters mm. yeah i mean i don't know what to say to that other than you know <laughs> i wish it would happen but i don't think it will uh well certainly not to the extent that we might like it to um you know, just looking forward, and I know it's really hard to predict, but but the issues of um, player contracts and things like that come into focus because they are they're all supposed to end on June thirtieth, and loan players and players out of contract and what have you. And we don't know when football is going to start again. Um, we we keep hearing, or we heard quite often um, at the start, where. Uh, you know, in terms of the spread of the virus in, in the UK and in Ireland, that we're sort of two weeks behind Italy. And here we are at the start of April and Italy is still experiencing a uh, horrendous uh, situation with, with hundreds of deaths every day. And it feels like it's going to be a long time before football gets started there again. Uh, therefore, it's going to be a long time before football starts here again. Uh, you know, nobody, I, I think, has the right answer to this because it's just impossible. And it's probably something that will be worked out by by lawyers and, you know, business people. Um, but But the idea that football might not begin again until much later this year is is not something we can really escape. No, and, and we also can't escape that there is likely to be another peak in this virus when everyone stops social distancing for a while and when next winter comes around, which is why, I mean, my belief is is that we should complete the season as and when we can. If that means that 2020-21 becomes a very different football season, whether it's a, a shorter one or, or maybe even just that it takes the the course of another season just to complete this season. Mm. So be it. You know, it would it would upset me very greatly. And it, it makes me feel as a, as a freelance journalist, it makes me feel like a, a turkey voting for Christmas. But yeah. if that's what it takes, that's what it takes, because there's we, the worst thing to do would be to pretend everything was normal to try and start playing football again and then after two weeks realize that okay we're going to need another three-month break here because that that's when it gets really messy and bitty i think i think the responsibility is to wait until a period of time when it is fully safe uh, and that comes from a governmental point of view to carry on social life as normal i don't think football should be in any way given first dibs on on being the guinea pig for, mm. for re-beginning social life. For sure, for sure. And I think it would be, um, you know, from a, a governmental point of view, and I know people out there are doing their jobs as best they can, but it would be great to hear um, science journalists and medical journalists quizzing the politicians uh, for a bit <laughs> rather than just the political ones. And I'm not d saying that in any disparaging way uh, to political journalists who are doing their best, I'm sure, but but the more expert uh, knowledge and information we have, the better uh, when it comes to dealing with this thing. But look, we'll, we'll see um, what happens. It's going to be a way down the road and uh, people are going to have to stay inside and they're going to have to entertain themselves and stay isolated. And uh, it's difficult for a lot of people, I know. 
know for very, very many reasons. But um, what we try and do on the podcast in the last little while is give give people a couple of recommendations of things um, that they might uh, use to pass the time. So I've asked you to pick a couple of football books, if you wouldn't yeah. mind. Um, so w- what's your first one? Uh, the first one is because people have got so much time on their hands now is The Ball is Round by David Goldblatt, which is um, it's almost a textbook, although it's a very readable textbook. But it's, yeah, it's the football Bible. It's a complete history of football told in a very engaging way. It's 900 pages, so you'll be able to fill your time with that. And then the other one I went for was, it's completely different, which is The Miracle of Castel de Sangro, oh, which is... Wow might feel a little bit hard to read now given that it's about both football and travel both of which are impossible but yeah it's an incredible story told by a person who had the wherewithal to document it all of it as he went uh, about a very small club in a small town in italy that yeah made it big that's i mean that that was what i had written down here as well i was just going <laughs> to give one to back up your one and that was that was mine i think it it really is one of the the most amazing football books i've i've ever read the sort of incredulity that he has when he discovers how the game works in italy uh yeah. certain customs if you like <laughs> that that take place and he just cannot get his head around it uh, and everyone is going on with things as normal and he's looking at this going this is crazy what are you doing <laughs> yeah. but also i like yes. the way i like the way he decided you know he was a tactical expert as well and decided you know giving the <laughs> giving the, the various coaches uh, his tactical advice it both yeah it both feels very very naive but also incredibly well pulled off which yeah. is a, a winning combination uh, yeah, that's The Miracle of Castel de Sangro by Joe McGuinness. Okay, Daniel, listen, we'll leave it there. Thanks a million for uh, talking to us. Stay safe and stay healthy. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon, I hope. And you. Thank you. That's Daniel Story. You can find him on Twitter. He is at DanielStory85, at DanielStory85. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Right, seeing as there is no football, I thought it might be interesting to try and find some people to talk to for the podcast who are Arsenal-connected, but not in a football way, if you like. They're not sort of journalists or bloggers or podcasters or, or what have you. They're, they're Arsenal fans who might be doing interesting things in the world, out in that big bad world, or certainly were doing interesting things when we were allowed go out and do interesting things. Today's guest is the drummer for one of the biggest acts in the world right now. Her name is Lana Del Rey, and his name is Tom Marsh. Hello to you, Tom. Hello, sir. How are you doing? I'm all right. I kind of forget how we um, came to interact. I think it was through Instagram. Yes. I've been listening to you and James um, for many moons. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I maybe reached out to you on Instagram and said hi. And uh, we started following those Instagram stories on each other, I think, didn't we? Yeah, I think um, so. It was a few months ago. Um, Yeah, but I've been listening to you and James for many moons um, as a touring musician. Yeah. And I was thinking about this um, about a year ago. 
I played with, I'm the drummer for Lana Del Rey is my main gig that people may know me for. But um, we played in, we were playing in Chile and um, I had this awful gig um, where all, I play with a real kit and an electronic kit. So I have these two drum kits, this big sprawling mm. bunch of technology and and the robot kit just died on me the night before. Oh, and we're no. playing in front of like 80,000 people. And so I woke up the next day in a hotel room in Chile and uh, just feeling mildly devastated. We got through the gig all right, and the humans are just ecstatic if they can see Lana anyway, so you can get away with murder. If things grind <laughs> to a halt, she strolls down to the crowd, does a papal visit, and everyone froths at the mouth, and you can get back to fixing your droids or whatever. <laughs> but anyway, the, the following morning, I opened the curtains, and there's a mountain with a castle on the top of it. And I'm like, I'm just going to go up that mountain and not think about this horrific show the night before. And I put on your podcast, so I'm listening to you and James. I think, I can't remember what the storyline was that week, but, you know, just I have you two as these kind of virtual mates. As I climb this mountain with this kind of flock of stray dogs following me up this cliff path, and uh, I'm chuckling away. It was just quite a surreal moment. Yeah, it is so weird. I've had, I've had you with me for many moons. Basically. Well, that's cool. I mean, it's it's um, you know when you think about life and when you think about you know where you might end up in whatever terms uh, you, you consider your career going in. You know, was there ever a point where you envisaged yourself walking up a mountain in Chile to visit a castle because your, you know, your robot drum kit wouldn't work the night before in front of 80,000 people? I mean, that itself is quite a surreal thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's it's been uh, a, a strange, it was a strange shift and it, you know, was instantly considerably bigger um, than a lot of the stuff I did before. I basically um, signed up for what I thought was going to be a European, potentially a bit of American tour. But uh, in twenty beginning of 2013, Mm. I basically, I thought I was signing up for for six months. And now I'm in my eighth year. You know, everything's ground to a halt because of this goddamn plague. But um, it was, um, yeah, it, it was basically the first year... We did a bunch of rehearsals in London. The rest of the band's American. She's American, but she's got British management. So them, the manager knew me for various projects before where I would drum and produce and sort of multitask in in different acts. And um, so it was easy to get the audition initially. But, you know, I did a few weeks of rehearsal with the band, you know, super professional long ass days getting the thing together and then the first the warm-up show in inverted commas was five thousand people in like a french town mm. and you know I, that was probably i'd done festivals with other bands and things before so i played to big crowds on the odd show but you know it was straight into arena tour of europe sold out i mean she was really starting to kick off at that point mm. So, you know, and within a year, you sort of, you've been on private jets, you've been all around the globe. I hadn't really toured the States, you know, and then that sort of really blew my mind towards the end of it. And that's why I'm, you know, I ended up, I'm living in New York now and haven't been for years. Right. But uh, I just never left because I got the American visa, which is impossible to go to, you know, to get. And uh, I was like, this is a nice place to be. Yeah. And I was sort of done with london at that point so well, let's cool. let's let's come back to that because i'm sure there are some stories we can uh, uh go through from your time <laughs> touring and, and what have you but originally you know uh where are you from and and what is your what is your connection to arsenal how have you how have you got this um affliction that we all have <laughs> that that, that torments us and and well, enrages us yeah. and gives us joy in well, I was going to say equal measure, but it doesn't. It's not equal measure at all at the moment. Oh, but there you go. Man. Um, I mean, I'd say it really got a grip on me at a very good point in the Arsenal history because I I travelled around and I'd always liked Arsenal, but I'm from the West Country where 
you know, that's where I spent my teenage years. And, and I was surrounded by sort of rugby boys. And, oh. You know, there's not, yes, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, people gurgling beer and wrestling each other for fun in the pub. Um, it was, uh, so I liked Arsenal and, I, and I'd actually been to Highbury a couple of times in the early 90s. But then I finally got, I broke free from the British redneck world and uh, ended up, Back in London, even though I was born in London, I hadn't lived there for years. And um, I was in Camden. So I moved to Camden because as a musician, that was the Mecca um, in sort of around the age of 16, 17. And mm. we're talking, you know, late 90s into the Invincibles. Sure. So, you know, it was easy to fall properly in love at that point. Yeah. Um, you know, being in Camden town, you know, in the indie scene like Britpop and all that and then into into that era it was it was delicious you know that's a good time to grow up in that particular area isn't it and to be you know of that age where everything is just like oh this is great music is great football is great uh, yeah man yeah. it was it was great I have very fond memories of that I was working in nightclubs you know pulling pipes and zigzagging my way home and just yeah it was, it was a, a, a <laughs> A delightful time, basically. So, what what um, was music always your chosen career? Because I was looking around, you know, before uh, I talked to someone, I do try and find out a little bit about them, and I, you know, I found a bit on you on a LinkedIn thing, <laughs> uh, and you play guitar, drums, sing, keyboards. I mean, that's quite a lot. Um, yeah, I I drummed a lot. I was drumming was my main thing. My dad was uh, a successful musician in the 70s. He was in a kind of glam rock band, glam rock-ish, um, called Sailor. And they had a couple of hits in the 70s, 76, 77. So I grew up with musical instruments in the house. Oh, okay. And drums, you know, I was a huge uh, Ginger Baker fan because he was a cream, he was a massive Eric Clapton cream obsessive. So grew up with that. Um, but and then was like... I. You know, as a drummer, played in sort of nineteen bands in London, and um, and then I just got really fed up with waiting for lead singers to pull the fingers out and just get on with it. So I started teaching myself. I had like a vague understanding of guitars and keyboards and stuff. Uh, I just taught myself sort of everything it, over a, a year or two. I really cracked on. At what age? And started, so we're talking. It was late teens, nineteen, twenty, um, and uh, and basically, you know, the first and I coupled up with this other guy called Ben Hardy, and we made this thing called Repairman, which was a duo. But it was through necessity because I was just so I was always felt like the most dedicated and um, most into most willing to put the time in to get something done so in the end i sort of i'm singing playing guitar did all the beats sort of taught myself to produce and like the first sort of demo we did me and this other chap um we got a little record deal and it was like the almost the first song i'd ever completed with a verse chorus middle eight and all that mm. i think it was just it was an explosion of all kinds like we both we had this connection creatively we taught ourselves to sort of produce. We we all we both made records in other bands. I've been the drummer. He'd done other things. It was just like a coming together, this delicious thing of like, right, you know, we're, we're producers now, we're singers. And then it was like, do we put a band around this thing, the two of us? It was like, no, let's let's do this live, just the two of us. So we, you know, it's it, it a bit, you know, we're talking twenty years ago, so. It was. It's a bit free to what things now. The backing tracks. If you want to run run a string section now alongside your live performance, it's a hell of a lot easier. Back then, mm. you know, all our we had these. I borrowed, a, you know, a sampler off my old man, you know, and I, you know, we we're triggering beats and, do, and we just worked out how the two of us should do it. And I'm sort of running from playing guitar, putting a guitar down. If there's a beat rolling, I'll run over to the kit. And then we'd add a couple of bars so it gives me a breath before I start singing lead playing kick, uh, playing kit and breaks. And it was sort of organized chaos. It took us a while to get that to look good. But the tunes we'd agonized over 
definitely helped it. So we had this sort of album's worth of stuff and got ourselves, you know, a nice financial injection through uh, was Jamaraquai's label at the time, but he just sold 26 million albums and was right. their management. He had had a few quid, and um, which was at the time I was signing on, you know, <laughs> so it was like suddenly there's a guy with a gold credit card taking you out for dinner, and it was incredibly exciting. Um, and they, you know, they put us out, and he treated their label, treated us as, as if we were this, you know, they'd only had Jamaraquai. So we suddenly had all this money and we ended up touring, opening up for a bunch of bands who went on. It was like, it was like we called it the curse of Repairman in the end because absolutely every band we opened up for or toured with sold a million records. Except uh, you. We we certainly did not do that. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we, uh, we sold a few. But we got kudos and, and you know, we, I'd learned to play in huge rooms. So I was opening up for the likes of Athlete and Keen and Razorlight and um, Gomez. So at the, that era yeah, yeah, yeah. band, you know, sort of post, you know, early, early noughties, late nineties, East stuff. Um, and from that, that's how like some of the managed, Lana's management knew me as the repairman drummer that was a producer, you know, and, um, and after Repairman finally ground to a halt, I uh, I sort of pushed my skills more into composing and doing film scores and did some commercials for my sins, mm. which is uh, and things like that. Moved to Brighton and did that alongside still playing in other bands and 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 drumming and and producing and stuff. But sure. um, I think to get in the Lana world. It definitely they were interested in people that had some of those other skills because she's got such a mixture textures of textures and beats and things so. yeah so i mean what's your what's your um i mean can <laughs> can you choose between live and the studio i mean do you do you prefer one over the other i mean i guess if you're touring the world the studio um becomes very very appealing after a while because i'm, I'm sure the schedule is quite hectic and what have you but are they, you know, there's obviously a different buzz from both of them. Yeah, I mean, to, I'm Lana's live drummer, so mm. that's been my job um, with her. You know, that's that's the contract I have. Um, I tour now with a, a neat little um, recording setup so I can make, I've got like a drum sampler called a machine, this German delightful droid i've got this tiny little midi keyboard and i tend to bring a guitar as well and a mic mm. and then you can do everything through the laptop so whenever i get to a hotel room which is tends to be every other day if it's a bus tour you sleep one night on the bus and then the following day you get to the hotel i just set up the set up the little studio just so it's there in case i have the inclination to do something um but yeah i just finished an instrumental album that i recorded last year on tour with Lana. It was all recorded doing that. And um, each track was recorded in a hotel room or, you know, occasionally in a dressing room or something. I might program some beats or something. But it was, yeah, it was all done. That's the beauty of these devices now. They, uh, I, I managed to get a decent enough sound. Then I mixed it, you know, I get back to Brooklyn and mix it with an adult just feed all the stuff through some, someone else's gear and pin yeah. it, make it sound shinier. Yeah. So what, what's, um, what's the, what's the best thing about touring? I mean, is it the actual gigs themselves? I guess, you know, that live experience. I mean, you must get, uh, you must get to go to some amazing places, but not necessarily see very much of them. If you're sort of, you know, in and out and moving on to the next place. So, the, the best thing about playing Lana stuff, and I was a, you know, I I was a fan when I got the gig, and you know, she fucking loved her stuff, you know, um, so that her connection with her fans is absolutely euphoric and mental, so you can always fall back on that, but I, I remember Charlie Watts, the you know the Rolling Stones drummer, saying, it's been a, uh, it's a uh, five years of working. And 45 years are hanging about. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's like, you, the, the show itself is always 
wicked you know I, very rarely that you don't have a moment at some point because we don't tour an awful lot so the fans are so grateful you know to to be having to be there and we put a lot of effort into the to getting the show together so and the video screens are a big part of it and the lighting and all the rest of it mm. have, you know two back and singer dancers so they have this kind of Sherelles-esque Motown little dance moments with Lana um, so there's a lot going on in the show uh, that obviously pleases the fans. It is frustrating touring. Um, you know, it's, you get to somewhere like that you've never been to, like Buenos Aires, you know, and you've, you've heard so much about that place and you get, a, and I'll tend to just go, I'm going to do a, I'll do a, a solo day, you know, and just go covert. And it's like, there's a, huge outdoor cemetery there i'm going to do that go to a gallery um get a feast somewhere and just try and do like a feast something cultural and something else and mm. and then just get back it's get back to the hotel for, yeah. for a pint it's probably easier for the drummer to do that than it is for the singer if you like to sort of just I'll slip out that. and just oh yeah i mean i i work very close to a rock star but i'm you know, I'm not. I, I, I can, I can stroll. There are fans that know us, and we end up doing a lot of selfies and stuff. Sure. But like, like it's the Lana shows. You know, she, she, she has to go out um, covertly and in disguise or whatever if she wants to do that stuff. Yeah. I mean, what, um, what sort of crowds are you playing to? I mean, you said in Chile it's eighty thousand. I mean, that's well, this, with this this plague that's stricken mankind, mm. we were about to do. I mean, this was going to very exciting year. I was looking at the calendar. I was like, this is because there was festivals that we're, we've done before, but we've gone up the bill to either like headlining or penultimate. So we were going to play Glastonbury pyramid stage. Oh, wow. Which we played before. And obviously there's a West country boy. We played that in 2014 and it was the stage that, you know, got me, you know, it was seeing Radiohead in 97 there, seeing The Cure when I was a tiny kid because my mum used to do a stall at Glastonbury, so I'd go as a kid and see this stuff, always on the pyramids though. So we got to do that in 2014 in the broad daylight in the afternoon and it was, you know, singularly the most terrifying and amazing day of my life sure. as a musician. Um, but we were meant to be playing that um, I think we were going to be on just before the headline, which would have been um, Kendrick Lamar on the Friday night. And then we were going to do Coachella, you know, closing or like same again, second mm. to last before Frank Ocean. That's been, uh, they've all been pushed. Uh, Glastonbury's obviously put off till next year. Coachella and the Lollapalooza South America tour, which is what I was really looking forward to, which is, the biggest shows we played, which is, you know, headlining, but like a hundred thousand people it was in Brazil last time. Wow. And, um, so that was, there was five of those playing Paraguay. We've never been to Paraguay, but Chile, Mexico, Brazil. And, um, yeah, four, five, Argentina. Yeah. 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 So those have been moved. And there's a bunch of other festivals, some of which have been postponed or canceled. Um, then we had our we had a Europe, European tour, which um, got postponed as well. So that was sure. playing in the O2 and things like that. So a bunch of you know I never played the O2 before in London. That you know lots of but a, lots of big um, ambitions that have been put off. Uh, yeah, I mean I think everything unfortunately has been put off yeah. uh, for a little yeah, while. No. Um, uh, and obviously we hope it's it's uh, over uh, sooner rather than later for everybody's sake. Um, just, just sort of finally, just bring it back around to, to Arsenal. Um, can you keep up pretty well on the road? And, and do you sort of uh, try and, and mix with some of the other Arsenal fans? Because obviously there are a load of Arsenal fans in, in New York. <laughs> Actually, there's a Dublin band. I know you're a Dubliner. Yeah. Is that Fountains DC? Oh, Fontaine's DC, are, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, who I really like, you know, very different to Lana World, but I just love that band. I loved because uh, I'd lived in Dublin 
for a short while many moons ago mm. so i just love that it's kind of a cross between fall and and a dub with a dublin accent and a, i don't know it's just the whole and i love his lyrics and stuff but the, i think one of the guitarists or the bass player performs in an arsenal strip and i saw that they were playing the pyramid stage at glastonbury so i was going to be like i'm definitely here and find that chap and right I'm okay <laughs> um, but um yeah i mean you and James honestly kept me sane and kept me kept you know the soap opera. It feels more like a a rolling storyline now because there's so much content and so many places to be getting it. So you know I listen to a lot of the podcasts. I'm always reading your blog and obviously on Twitter there's twenty or thirty reputable ish humans <laughs> posting stuff. Um, so I feel like it's needed, especially touring, because it's nothing to do with music. Music's very all-encompassing, and we, we put everything into that. So it's this glorious thing that I, I feel like I, I need it more when I'm touring, you know. And yeah. I don't miss a game, you know. I, I went, you know, on the stream, everything. So this last 12 months, I've seen more Arsenal than ever. So watching it in, like, Colombia and shit... Well, that's the thing it's, now. Uh, you can watch it everywhere, can't you? You just need your laptop, yeah. uh, you know, half-decent internet connection. You can stream everything. Yeah, and then I've, I've got it. I've, got, I've missed a thing. And, um, you know, I've got this funny little, but I'm back in New York, this weird sort of uh, gang of people that will come and watch games. If they're not, not the 7 a.m. AM ones. That's a bit full on. But, you know, um, I used to go to the Blind Pig occasionally at 7 yeah, a.m. Yeah, yeah. That place has moved on. And I remember the first time going into... Um, I think it was a European thing. No, it was it was a Premier League game, twelve o'clock kickoff, so at seven a.m. And there was like a hundred hammered Americans. But uh, I found a few expats that day, and they ended up being part of my clan of you know going to see games. But it's a shame the blind pig has, has moved on, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's I gone think. now. But I mean, there's a, I think there's a new bar uptown. I can't remember the name of it. There's O'Hanlon's as well on on Fourteenth, which is just down. Yeah, yeah so. Um, yeah. Hello to Tom, to if you're listening. Well, you know? Oh yeah, Woodwork. That's over in Brooklyn, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's just down the road from where I used to live. But that's yeah. one of the ones. But there's a few. There's lots of soccer bars, you know, where you've got all the games going on. So. Sure, that's for sure. Our, our our good friend Curtis is the the head of the uh, the Arsenal NYC uh, guys out there. He runs everything uh, really well and. Uh, yes, it's, it's I've been meaning to catch up with that guy at some point. Yeah, I do. I'm sure he'd love to. He'd love to make contact. Well, look, Tom. Yeah. Um, best of luck when you do get back on the road again. And uh, thank ho- you, sir. Hopefully, your drum kits will will all function correctly. Um, <laughs> lots of time now to make what? sure that the electronics yeah. are right. You know, you, there's no excuses. Um, nobody's got anything better to do right now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, one of my kits is in, I think, in London. The other one's in LA. Neither of them made it back to New York. They're quarantined as well. So oh I look forward God. to seeing them again. All right. Well, listen, good to talk to you. And, uh, you know, I'll keep up with your stuff on the uh, the Instagram as it gets going again. And uh, Thank good- you so much, man. And thank you again for keeping me so uh, plugged in and entertained over the years. I'll do my best. Thank you for listening. I really, I really appreciate it as well. Good, good to chat, Tom. Take it easy. Thanks, mate. Bye. Cheers to Tom. He is on Twitter and Instagram at Tom Marsh Music. That is at Tom Marsh Music. Give him a follow. Right. We're going to leave it there for today. There's not a great deal more to talk about. No match to preview this weekend. Maybe one day there'll be football again. I miss my five-a-side on a Friday night as well. I have to say, that was always a a nice end to the week. Now I don't know what fucking day of the week it is. But look, it's a small complaint. It's a small price to pay to keep everybody healthy and well. Remember, we're all in this together. Look out for each other. Mind each other. Be careful. Do the right things. And uh, have a great weekend, whatever you get up to. James and I will be here on Monday with an Arsecast Extra. So until then, take it easy. Cheers. Bye-bye.
Arsenal Football Club today announced that players would be returning to training as soon as next week. However, they will have to practice social distancing. This means no player can come within two meters of another. Chairman Sir Jibs Keswick said, This will be easy for them. All they got to do is remember how they defend it with Unai Emery in charge. Boom, boom. Shake, shake the room. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.